Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Eric Cohn sits down with Yuval Levin, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and editor-in-chief of National Affairs, to discuss his new article featured in The Dispatch, The Changing Face of Social Breakdown. Levin notices a strange cultural trend. Although things may look great from a mere statistical perspective, something more ominous is going on in the background. Levin writes, This mix of seemingly good and bad news is no paradox. The good news is often just one consequence of the bad. There are fewer divorces because there are fewer marriages. There are fewer abortions because there are fewer pregnancies. There are fewer out-of-wedlock births because there are fewer births in general. Fewer teenagers are dying in car accidents because fewer teenagers are getting driver's licenses. There is less social disorder, we might say, because there is less social life. We are doing less of everything together so that what we do is a little more tidy and controlled. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Yuval Levin, welcome to Act in Line. Thanks very much for having me. So I wanted to have you on to talk about this piece you published in The Dispatch, uh, November 16, The Changing Face of Social Breakdown. And in the beginning, you identify a recent study that came out from some of your American Enterprise Institute colleagues, uh, Brad Wilcox and Lyman Stone. Could you talk about what they discovered in that study and then what, uh, I guess that they didn't really highlight, but what stuck out to you? about what they presented in that study? Well, the study they published, which I certainly recommend to everyone listening, is a paper that looks at the state of family formation in the wake of the pandemic um, and tries to think about how some of the trends we've seen over time in terms of, uh, of, of childbearing, of marriage, a few other key indicators um, have fared over the past two years. And in the course of doing that, they also lay out those historic patterns, those longer term trends over recent decades. What struck them most about all this was the bifurcation of family formation, which is a very important pattern and really stark and has grown worse over the period of the pandemic. So Americans who have more family income, for example, or more personal income are significantly more interested in family formation, both in marriage and in having and in having children, um, they also found, and this may be less surprising, that Americans who are uh, religiously affiliated and Americans who uh, describe themselves as right of center or as Republican voters also are more interested in marriage and in having children than um, those Americans who are secular or who are on the left. Now these aren't new trends, but they look at how they've um, at how they've become sharper over the course of the pandemic, and it's a very interesting thing to see. What struck me in looking at the report, and especially at the historical trends that they lay out, is that the the way in which they think about the challenges to to human flourishing, the challenges to social order, even the challenges to family formation, which strike us now as self evident or common sense actually would have been very surprising to social observers uh, in American life in even the second half of the 20th century, even 20 years ago, because there's an assumption underlying this report and a lot of other social science now that the challenge we face, the challenge to people thriving in their lives, the challenge to our society uh, flourishing has to do with people's desire for marriage and for children and rather than with what you might describe as moving too fast in life, as people um, having sex too early and too young, people uh, having children before they're married, um, people sort of running off too fast and jumping into life too quickly. What you find now when you step back and look at the patterns we find is actually that people are not jumping into life enough. And that the desire for marriage and even for children 
um, has declined in some dramatic ways. And then you realize that some of what we think of as good news in American social life at this point, like low divorce rates, low abortion rates, um, it, it has a lot to do with the fact that people are just doing less of everything. There's less divorce because there's less marriage. There's less abortion because there are fewer pregnancies. And then you see that, in fact, this is a pattern well beyond family formation and sexuality, that a lot of younger Americans are holding back, are not jumping in, are not getting started, are not too energetic, but are rather not energetic enough. And this is a different mode of disorder that we have to think about in different terms. One of the points you made that stuck out to me was, and and this is admittedly somewhat of a interesting and maybe strange way to think about this, but I thought it was elucidating that if you look at drug crises in different eras, that it was a period of time, certainly in the 1980s and and a lot of, you know, not, not just Wall Street culture in the 1980s, but a use of lots of drugs like cocaine, which are uppers, which make you, you know, go too fast and do dumb things at too rapid of a speed. And the crisis, the drug crisis we've spent most of the last five, seven, eight years talking about has been the opioid epidemic, which is a drug that makes you not want to do a whole lot, want to sit around, um, and also numbs pain. Um, I think that that is a rather striking realization of the way that people have sort of backed away from life. So what what do you think – what in anything do you think that that tells us about, um, you know, a, a negative thing like drug use tells us about people's attitudes? And, and where do you think that this reticence to engage in life is coming from? Yeah, I do think that that difference in what we look to um, what we look to drugs for. Right. We have a drug crisis in America today. We had a drug crisis in America in the 1980s and 90s. And as you say, they're very different in character. And there is a difference between seeking relief from pain and seeking a kind of sharpening of experience, um, seeking an upper or seeking a downer. And I do think that it tells us something about the way in which people now experience disorder and dysfunction and pain in their lives. Um, And the sense that um, rather than wanting more energy, wanting to jump in too fast, a lot of Americans now, younger Americans in particular, are seeking to hold back. And as you say, to numb experience, to step back from it. Um, And, you know, I I think that it is important to see that in some respects, this has led to some good things. Um, We've seen, for example, an incredible decline in teen pregnancy which is good, which is a wonderful thing, that decline. I mean, this is something that people were working for for decades. Um, It's very hard to say exactly how that happened, frankly, or why, but um, teen pregnancy is now dramatically lower than it was in 2000. It's lower even than it was 10 years ago. And so we shouldn't simply see all this as a bad thing, but we should recognize that this, this is a function in some very important ways of a kind of pulling back from life. And I think that pulling back has a lot to do um, with the loss of a sense that we're provided a kind of life script by traditional religion, by tradition in general, by strong communities and the models of families. I think that breakdown um, of of the traditional family and, and communal religion has had it has been one cause of this uh, of this change in the nature of social breakdown. I think that there are also some practical material causes. Um, you know, you would say the world of work is plainly less friendly now to family formation, and I I think that's true both in uh, in in the work that white collar college educated people do and that more working class Americans do is less friendly to family formation than it was. But I think we've also seen um, changes in in technology drive us away from social engagement. Social media has come to substitute for social life rather than to reinforce it, and in ways that make us more passive, in ways that allow us to meet our needs with less social engagement, um, so that it's possible now to be 
you know, a functional loner um, in American life in a way that would have been harder before. And I, I think that these these patterns have built up in such a way that we now face the challenge of drawing people in rather than of restraining people when we think about how to uh, how to serve social order and how to help people flourish. And that just means we have to think differently about what's required in terms of moral education, in terms of social policy and family policy. Um, I think that our, our thinking about these things is not caught up with the kinds of realities that this new social science data has been showing us now for almost two decades. Yeah, as you point out in the, the piece, especially amongst younger people, you have the decline in teen pregnancy, you have a decline in teen sex, you also have a decline in teen dating. You have fewer teenagers who are dying in car crashes. Another one of these, that's a really good thing. But the reason, one of the contributing reasons is because fewer teenagers are getting driver's licenses now. I'm curious what you think of the changes in the way previous generations of parents have been oriented towards raising their kids. You know, you can look to Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's work in The Coddling of the American Mind, their discussions of safetyism as an overriding concern for parents wanting to protect their kids from anything awful that might befall them um, that creates these anti, you know, the anti-fragile problems uh, where kids are just, they're not going out there. They're not getting scrapes and bruises. And, uh, for another problem associated with that as well, when they're getting into conflicts, there's always a third party to which they can turn and appeal to have somebody else settle the issue for them rather than figuring out as, as kids used to, and, and kids need to, how to settle issues amongst themselves without, immediately appealing to a third party authority to settle these issues for them. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that's actually a very important facet of what we see happening around us. I mean, I, I would describe it as a kind of uh, excessive risk aversion. We want people to be averse to risk. And in some important ways, the, 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 the both the social policy and our ways of talking about social breakdown over the last half century has been an effort to get people to see the dangers of risk, of excessive risk. But I do think that we now need to be also alert to dangers of excessive risk aversion. Um, a sense that we're telling people that life is too dangerous and they should just back off. And, uh, you know, as I say, we also have now technical and technological ways of averting that kind of social and emotional risk. And it's made us all, I think, too risk averse. And you find risk aversion now. Uh, really deforming family life, parenting, as you say, but also education and work. Um, I think we find in all of these arenas uh, a, a kind of uh, an, an attitude that says, hold back, don't be too bold. You don't want to create a problem. You don't want to create a risk. Now, up to a point, that's good. You know, you want people to be responsible. But I think it contributes a lot and maybe more than we're inclined to see to a number of other social dysfunctions we live with, including the kind of rise of, um, of, of speech codes and of restrictions on what people are allowed to say and do in the workplace, in the culture, in our politics. All of this is out of a sense that we should be very careful around each other. We should walk on eggshells, and uh, you know, uh, not only avoid giving offense, but avoid creating problems. I think these things are very closely connected to the kind of risk aversion that tells younger people, just just stay home. Um, don't don't get into this. Don't jump too fast. Don't uh, don't don't move too 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 intensely. Um, I think we've got to recover basically a, a, a love of dynamism, which is in some ways natural to the American character. But which I think at different times, and certainly at this time, um, can be uh, can can be restricted and put down in ways that deform our social life, and so we find ourselves in this odd position of having to recover the case for energy, the case for engagement, the case for dynamism, and in some respects even the case for risk. For the change in the orientation of how parents looked at this, I more than a year ago here in Grand Rapids, um, uh, one of the 
universities here had Jonathan Haidt for uh, for a talk, and he did this interesting experiment where he went across the audience, and there was a pretty wide age range in the audience, and, and asked everybody who is uh, a Gen Xer or older, uh, as I move my hand across the audience, shout out the age at which your parents let you go outside and play on your own without any supervision. And, you know, you heard anything from, you know, six, seven, eight. And then he says, now I want everybody who is, um, you know, a Gen Z in the audience to do the same thing. And you heard, you know, double digit numbers more frequently yeah. than I think anybody would 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 expect. Um, do you have any thoughts on what changed that orientation in the way parents thought about things like that? I mean, I, I'm, I'm always skeptical yeah. of, you know, pointing to one thing in history that, that started, uh, started at all. Um, but I, I've, I've always wondered the appearance of Eaton Potts on the milk carton and the yeah. way that media covered cases like, um, Adam Walsh, uh, where parents all of a sudden had all these horrible outlier cases of awful things happening to children being um, abducted put in front of them and sensationalized in the way the media covered them when if you actually look at statistics on things like child abduction, in most cases, it is by someone the family is very familiar with, not a stranger, and often somebody within the family. And our I think our perception of the dangers of the world got almost it inverted as the world was actually becoming more safe. We had this sneaking suspicion, or at least I think a generation or two generations of parents had this sneaking suspicion that it was actually getting more dangerous. Yeah. You know, I think there's an interesting dynamic around this um, that's related to, oddly enough, that's related to our attitudes about equality and egalitarianism in American life. There's a there's a wonderful sort of brilliant passage in, in Tocqueville's Democracy in America where he says, the more equal a society grows, the more intolerant it becomes of any remaining inequality. So that intense egalitarianism is actually evident in, in societies that are very equal, not in ones that aren't. And I think we've seen something like that about risk and safety in American life. So that as, uh, as our experience has grown safer, much safer, thanks to modern medicine, thanks to all kinds of technologies that have enabled us to live less risky lives, um, we've become less tolerant of risk. And the psychology of that is understandable, but it's led us down a path where, as you say, just as American society has become much safer for children, we've come to believe that it is less and less safe for children. And a lot of the a, a lot of the ways in which the media and the culture, kind of talk to parents about the risks that children face have become more intense, not less intense as those risks have diminished. That begins, I think you see the beginning of that in the early 1980s. Um, that generation didn't quite feel it. Their parents didn't quite buy it. But as they became parents, uh, you know, I, I, I was born in 1977. I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of uh, a younger Gen Xer. And I would say our culture was filled with those stories of risk, but our parents didn't quite treat us that way. And we then ended up treating our own children according to our sense of, uh, of, of, of how risky it is to be a kid in America. And it's a very distorted sense. And I absolutely do think that that has had a tremendous effect on the way that younger Americans now think about risk throughout their life. I mean, you see this in the pandemic in an extraordinary way. The, the, the element of the population least at risk in this pandemic has been children um, from the very beginning. And it's been clear for a long time. I mean, we still say, well, we didn't know, but we did know very early, um, you know, by the middle of 2020. But this thing did not seem to be affecting children. And yet the, the harshest steps taken have been around children. Schools were closed. Uh, in some places for a year, for an entire academic year. In many places, children are still wearing masks in schools now, uh, all day, when there's not a reason to believe that that is necessary. Um, I think the way we approach the, 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 the safety of our children has a lot to do with the pattern we started out talking about, which is uh, young parents now have a sense that raising a child is a very arduous thing, that it requires constant oversight, that it takes all your time, 
all the time. And therefore, the, 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 the decision they feel themselves making when they decide to become parents is a much more demanding and arduous choice than it really ought to be. And, then, and maybe then it was for their own parents, for whom it, it was a little bit easier to see this as just the natural progression. Um, it now feels to a lot of younger Americans like a big choice that will need to absolutely transform uh, what they do with every minute of their lives. And I think that contributes to the way in which people make decisions about family, make decisions about uh, having children. Rather than thinking this is a beginning, this is how we start a family, people think of marriage as something you have to be really ready for. Um, and you know, you've got to be earning enough, you've got to be in a place in your career when you can do it. Rather than thinking uh, about children in, in, in a way that suggests that this is a natural next step in adulthood, People tend to think of it as uh, as more fundamentally transformative than that. And as you say, there's not one factor. All these factors feed together and get us to a place where we now again have to make the case, uh, a positive case for why uh, family formation is essential rather than thinking only about how to restrain excess. Talking about risk aversion, I mean, the, the first example, of course, that comes to mind for our uh, miscalculations on, on being overly risk averse is the COVID pandemic. Do you think that the pandemic, did it have a catalytic effect to these trends that were already running? Um, or did it really, was it just a mechanism that cl more clearly revealed the trends that were already there? Yeah, I, I think it is the latter. Um, and we'll see. I mean, it's a little bit hard still to know quite what the effect will be on these long-running trends. But I think that it has had more to do with, with revealing the way we think um, about risk, about, uh, about life, about family. You know, I, I would say that if you talk to older Americans at the beginning of this pandemic, they might have said, look, a lot of people are going to be home now uh, more than they were before. And in nine months, you're going to have lots of kids. And if you talk to younger Americans, they would have said something like, they're just going to be no children for a while. And they were right. Um, it's, it certainly seems so far like they were right. The psychology of this um, does seem to me to be a function of, of these pre-existing trends. But the pandemic has made us what we were, but more so. And so has revealed a little more of what these trends mean. One of the things at the beginning of the pandemic that we looked to as kind of a saving grace, right? The, the, the advancement of technology that facilitated a lot of people to be able to keep working even if they weren't in an office space anymore, to be in connection and communication with people. Um, I, I, I think I heard you talk about this on the, on the commentary podcast that we have uh, – I think one of the other things that it is – it may have facilitated a lot of people being physically at home more so that they're around their kids uh, more often. Um, and that was certainly true for, for me. I have two kids and both my wife and I were working from home, although also while experiencing the frustrations of not only doing our jobs but being our kid's teacher at the same time. Um, so certainly there were some psychological implications of, of all of that that made it more stressful than just enjoying normal time of being at home with, with your family. Um, the we had this technology that enabled us to be able to communicate with each other like we are right now. We're talking over Zoom in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in you in Washington. Um, you made this point of, and I, I often think about this with regard to the founders of a lot of these social media companies. And I've I've worked for a while now building community and social media. And what it's revealed to me is that it can be useful for certain things, but it is just not at all a substitute for actual community. It is, uh, as you I think pointed out in the commentary podcast, it's communication. And there's a difference between communication and communion. And we're missing a lot of those opportunities for communion that we used to have as we've retreated into our own homes at the onset of this pandemic. But again, that was trends that we're already starting to see prior to the onset of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that, that social media in general, but especially over the course of the last two years of pandemic, has, has really clarified for us the difference between these two elements of uh, of of what uh, of what socializing involves, part of it is communication, just exchanging information. That's a big part of it, and we've been able to do that 
we've been able to do that even for those of us who have uh, or who did work from home during the height of the pandemic. Um, it, it was possible in a way that it would not have been even 10 years prior or 20 or 30, of course, to continue to work, to continue to be in touch with people, to uh, have meetings online instead of in person and communicate all the same information. What you can't do is have real communion with people. Um, you know, and so while it's possible to gather for a Saturday service at my synagogue on Zoom and to say all the prayers and, and meet all our obligations, that's not nearly the same as being in the same room with that community of people and actually communing together around, uh, around those prayers and, and, and religious obligations. And I think that's the case in the workplace too. It's the case in school. It turns out that more than we imagined of what's involved in being social creatures has to do with just simply being together. Um, and there's there are ways in which by allowing social media to become, as you say, a substitute rather than a supplement for our actual community lives, um, we lose an absolutely vital piece of what it is to be social as human beings. Um, we lose an essential element of what it means to have community. And in some ways that is now a lot clearer than it was. We can do a lot of things from home on our own, but we're still at home on our own doing those things. And it is very hard to really thrive as a human being when you're isolated in that way. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not entirely down on social media. There are a lot of things that it has made possible that have been very valuable um, and, and that are very good. But I'm pretty down on social media. I think that it distorts our social engagement. It deforms our social lives. In many ways, it brings out the worst in us by encouraging us to engage in ways that are much more about expression than real engagement, and by encouraging us to, uh, to react to things rather than to take action together. Um, and so I, I think that it's going to be necessary for us to really think hard about what it is we're doing when we allow social media to substitute for real social engagement and whether there might be ways to use these technologies as supplemental tools by finding different kinds of platforms, different forms of engagement online, because what we're doing now, I think is doing tremendous harm to us and all the more so to the rising generation who takes this for granted as just what social life is. Um, and, you know, they're missing an awful lot. I often wonder how much of the issues we see with social media is that you know, in, in the great arc of history, it, it's still pretty young. It hasn't been with us for a long time. And we just haven't really figured out how to live with this kind of an advancement in technology yet. And uh, to invoke the the good folks at Commentary again, I've always liked Christine Rosen's description of the problem with social media is that it it makes you feel like you're living in a small town but without the benefits of actually living in a small town. Yep. Everything seems like it's in your backyard. It globalizes community beyond our ability to actually meaningfully comprehend that community. And I, I wonder if you know all these trends, I think, also uh, certainly intersect with a lot of our civic and political problems. And they help fuel uh, because we're losing that we're because we're more reticent to get into life. We're not getting involved in community and other civic groups and we're not communing with our fellow citizens within our own locality, does it just kind of propel us to elevate everything up to a much higher level, our, turn our quest for community from the local area to a national or even global sense because we're able to communicate with all of those people much easily, more easily than we could, and then as such, rather than looking to ourselves in a local community to solve our problems as we best understand them, we start looking to national political leaders to solve our problems and politicians being the kind of people who respond to incentives are more than happy to stand up there and promise the kinds of things that they cannot possibly deliver on. Yeah, I, I think that's very well put. I, I would say social media in particular 
cause two kinds of confusions that we need to pay attention to. One is about scale, as you say, and as you and as you say, Christine Rosen was writing a very important book on this question. It, it, it confuses us about whether what we're seeing in our little circle of social media is actually happening on a large scale in the real world or not. It's impossible to know whether this little Twitter storm is actually representative of something or not. And it also confuses public and private. It's not clear if our engagements on social media should happen in the mode of the kind of engagement we have with our close friends or should happen in the mode of the kind of engagement we have in the public square. It's a little bit of both of those things. And what you find a lot of times on social media is people behaving in public in a way that they should only behave in private. And that leads to a lot of, uh, of, of, of failures of responsibility, uh, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of trouble. Um, and in both those respects, you know, it's funny, if you look at the way people thought about the internet, say at the end of the 1990s, the kind of promise, almost utopianism people had about what it would mean for politics, a lot of that was about what it could do to enable people to engage with each other directly, and especially on the local level, where you, you would now have the information to act, and you would now have the means to connect and build institutions. And that's almost exactly the opposite of what has happened. What has actually happened has involved a kind of pulling back from the local level because we're no longer really constrained by locality. We can now, or we think we can, engage with people with similar interests and priorities wherever they happen to be. And that means that where you are doesn't matter. And when you pull that kind of localism out of American politics, it becomes very confused and jumbled and incoherent. And as you say, it has left us in a place where everything is national, where we think what really matters is what do you think about the big issue of the day at the national level or on cable news? Um, and rather than, you know, how are we going to deal with this challenge in our local community? And that kind of nationalization leaves us each with very little to do except stand around with our arms folded and complain about national politicians. Um, and, you know, th that's no way to solve problems and it's no way for the American system to function. So I, I, I think seeing that problem is actually key to doing something about it because there are ways that the internet could be useful at the local level, could allow for more engagement. But the trouble is the internet is a tool. It lets us do whatever we want. And that means we have to be careful about what we want. And at the moment, we're pretty confused about what we ought to want in order to be good citizens. I think you also see that it, it as I mentioned with the incentives that it presents to politicians to try to solve problems that aren't political through political means. And, and I, I was reminded of this as, as you were talking that I saw it was a day or two ago, a tweet from uh, Dr. Mohammed Oz, who's now running for Senate in Pennsylvania, who said, I'm here to promise you one thing. I'm going to help reignite the divine spark inside every American and empower us to live better lives. Um, and like the, the, the sentiment behind that, I, I, don't know that I have a particular problem with, but I don't know that that's in the job description of a United yeah, exactly. States senator. So what committee do you want to be on? Yeah. I don't understand. Um, the, the Committee of the Divine Spark, which I guess is something we'll, we'll need to add there. While we're talking about Congress, because I, I've referenced on podcasts we have uh, here numerous times the piece that you wrote for commentary a while back, that Congress is weak because its members want it to be. I'm wondering if these trends of reticence and, and holding back are also part of what's creating the dysfunction within our political system amongst our political leaders that you see Congress doesn't do its job. It is weak, as you said, because the members of Congress want it to be weak. And the founders, I think, envisioned that Congress would always, especially the members of Congress, but then Congress as a body, would be jealous guardians of their own power. And we see today that they're not. Um, the example of uh, Senator Cory Gardner when Jeff Sessions was going to rescind the Justice Department memo that said you, uh, they weren't going to go after states um, who had legalized marijuana. And his demand was for the Justice Department um, under the president of the United States to reinstate that when he's a United States senator and he can submit that legislation anytime that that he wants. Um, that 
is the same, you know, reticence to engage also infecting political leaders in that they're not they don't understand the institution they're a part of. They're not guarding their self-interest and their institution's self-interest. And as such, it leaves us in the current state that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very much connected around exactly what we were just talking about, which is a tendency to understand ourselves as commentators rather than participants, as observers rather than participants in various parts of our country's life. And it's particularly bizarre, of course, when you see it uh, among members of Congress, who are the, supposed to be, as an institution, the moving engine of our politics, the ones who take action. Everything else that happens in our national politics is is meant to be responsive to the frameworks of, of law and legislation that Congress enacts. And, and yet members now often see themselves as there to be kind of chief commentators, particularly on the presidency, sometimes on the courts, but very rarely to be first and foremost, the active force in American political life. And the sense that there's a problem and so we should act is just, it doesn't come naturally to them. Instead, there's a sense of there's a problem, so somebody should act. And, you know, everybody wants to see themselves as outsiders, not as insiders, as, uh, as, as voicing the kind of frustration that their voters feel, rather than answering that frustration by acting in ways that actually meet challenges. And so what you're left with is a bizarrely passive kind of Congress, which has all the power it needs to, uh, to, to, to bring the, the constitutional system back into order. What it lacks is the will to do that. And a lot of members see themselves fundamentally as, as performers, as you know, tribunes of the frustrations of the people. Uh, and so they're there to voice that, to, to voice that anger, to, to actually put Tony Fauci in front of me and let me yell at him the way that all my voters would wish they could. But that's not fundamentally the role of Congress. The role is to address these problems where they can be addressed through legislative action. And I think you find a lot of senators in different ways, maybe voicing the kind of sentiment that you see in that uh, in, 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 in that announcement from uh, from Dr. Oz. What struck me about the video that he put out was that it had nothing to say about Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not even sure there were any images of Pennsylvania in that video. There were you know, maybe there are cornfields there. There were a lot of cornfields in that video. Um, what there wasn't was a sense of this is who we are. These are our problems. And I can represent those by acting um, as your agent as your representative in the US Congress. Instead, there was just a, a kind of uh, audition to be a television commentator. And I think when you step back and look at it, a lot of members of Congress think about their job that way, at least uh, implicitly. Jason Chaffetz, the former congressman from Utah, leaving to become a Fox News commentator. Now Devin Nunez uh, leaving to become CEO of uh, pres former President Trump's social media company. I think are clear right. examples of that. Yeah, it's almost a horizontal move to go into TV from Congress now. The social breakdown that you described in your piece, is there is there a role through our through political mechanisms for addressing some of these problems? Well, I think that politics and public policy can help to create a supportive environment for family formation. I don't think the answers can come first and foremost or above all from the political system. There are ways in which, um, you know, as I mentioned, there are ways now that our economy is less friendly to family formation than it could be. And so I'm certainly a supporter of, uh, of some kinds of approaches to things like the, the child credit and, um, and, and of ways of making it a little bit easier for uh, for families to shoulder the responsibilities they have, and even just providing them with support, with material support. But that, that, that can only affect change at the margins. I think that that's not fundamentally where or how people make decisions. And it seems to me that even people who are on my side of these questions uh, and who want more uh, family-friendly public policy sometimes attribute too much power to that kind of change. The, the, the reason why two generations ago, say, Americans were much more likely to have that third and fourth child, much more likely to have uh, a, 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 a spouse as a full-time parent rather than both spouses working, um, 
oftentimes was that they just wanted that more than contemporary Americans do. It wasn't just that it was economically easier. It often was not easy at all um, and you know, took enormous commitment and sacrifice. But it, it, it was closer to what people wanted. And I think the question for us is how to help people want a life that has family at the center of it and a life that has community uh, and faith at the center of it. And that the answer to that question is not going to be fundamentally political. Politics can do less harm, can get in the way less. But I think ultimately, um, this is about this is about the culture, and that means it's about our formative institutions, family and school and church, much more than about political institutions. How do we go about approaching that? I mean, we hear. We've heard for a long time about these are problems within the culture. Um, you, you, you hear it in various forms. You can go back to it wasn't Andrew Breitbart who coined it, but I remember him here saying it a lot that politics is downstream from culture. If you want to pick, fix the political problems, you need to fix the culture. And I, I recently talked to Stephanie Slade from Reason um, about this, and I think one of the one of the enduring frustrations, or at least one that I feel, is. A lot of the more aggressive political propositions that are put out there, not not um, things like the child tax credit, which you were talking about that you said can can move some things on the margins. But some of these more holistic, this is the mechanism to solve these problems. And I, I will admit to also a bit of an allergy to talking about solving problems because yes. in most cases, we don't. We Our goal should be to make them less bad over time. Um, utopia is not for this world. Um, is that the response from, I think, both uh, parts of the conservative world as well as, you know, libertarian critiques would say that, you know, those huge governmental solutions are not going to do everything you think they're going to do and they're also going to create a lot of problems. The idea that there's – for every problem, there's a solution that is clear, simple and wrong. But the problem is when you have to pull back and say, what we have to do is change the culture. And it, it raises the question then of, well, how do we do that? I mean, there's yeah. it's very difficult to distill and offer a way to say that this is how we change the culture in a way that doesn't just boil down to telling people, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world, right? You know, if you want to see more um, elements of civil society, of more community groups, then be the person that starts putting that stuff together in your local community level, which I think is good advice. But it also just – it puts a whole lot of onus on one individual person to make small changes that they may not see as having the bigger cultural impact that is encased in the idea that we need to change the culture. Yeah. I, you know, I would tell you, I don't think there's actually a way out of that problem. Um, that is, the answer ultimately really is that culture is built from the bottom up and that how do we change the culture is really another way of asking how do I change my situation, my community, my immediate culture? And that amounts to a question we have to ask ourselves, not only once in some big way, but constantly in little moments of decision, we have to ask ourselves, what am I opting for here? What are my priorities? How should I act in this moment? What should I put first and second and third? And that is the way you change the culture. Now, I don't think that's, that's done to the exclusion of also thinking in larger ways about how do you introduce a different way of thinking how do you change norms? How do you uh, advance a different vocabulary? There's a role for that. There's a role for all of that. There's a role for uh, popular culture to make a difference. And you know, th there are a lot of ways in which our popular culture now undermines the kinds of, uh, of, of family formation that we're talking about here. And it could do better than that. And there's a role for people at every level of the popular culture to change that. Um, there's a role even for, you know, people who write books and articles to just make these arguments and have a conversation about them on a podcast. That's not a waste of time. But ultimately, the most significant thing that can happen and what we're all trying to change when we try to move the culture at higher levels are these individual decisions people make. And I, I think it's important to see that these decisions are not made in isolation. You're not just alone making a, 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 a choice for yourself. They're made in community. You make decisions about 
about building a family, about getting married, about having a child, about uh, about work and school and other big things, by looking around you and asking yourself, what do people like me do in this situation? And that means that it matters a lot what kind of environment we form, immediate, near-term environment for our children, for our neighbors, for one another, for ourselves, so that there really is no alternative to thinking about strengthening the culture by thinking about living a better life, being a better person. We're all fallen creatures. The human condition is a fallen condition. And that means that we can only improve ourselves by seeking a kind of personal improvement that ultimately also adds up to social and cultural improvement. Um, If there was an easier recipe for that, I'd be out there, uh, you know, offering it up in the street. I don't think there is. I think that it really is about trying to live by the kinds of principles that we think would be better for everyone. How important is a sense of personal courage to all of this? I mean, these are, we talked about social media and, you know, hanging around the, uh, that conversation is always going to be the threats of, um, you know, social media mobs, what we've come to call cancel culture and all of that. And I, I've just reminded in your, your, the last thing you were saying there, of one of the observations in Charles Murray's Coming Apart, that one of the primary problems he identified there was um, amongst uh, people who were following, uh, you know, the Brookings success sequence, uh, essentially, that it's not that they weren't practicing what they preached. It's that they were hesitant to preach what they practiced, that we're afraid of seeming judgmental, that we're afraid of saying that there is a better way to live your life and it is following by this because there might be other people with different circumstances and it may not be perfect for them. And as a result, we we don't advocate for the things that we believe in. And we believe in them so strongly that we actually live our lives according to that. Uh, are, are we lacking a a courage for, for people who understand that problem? You said, you know, writing articles, talking about it on a podcast. Um, you know, for more people, you know, not that I need podcast challengers out there, but everyone's got a podcast anyway. But for more people to be willing to talk about these things in a way that I just kind of eschews the concern that we've seemed to be built up in us that somebody might react negatively to what I have to say. And as a result, I'm just not going to say anything and I'm going to pull inward. I, I think that's certainly a problem on this front. But I would say that one way in which seeing our social problems not as requiring restraint, but as requiring a kind of jumping in could help us to overcome some of that trouble and be a little bit more courageous about outlining for people what a flourishing life can look like. Because if we're in a situation where what's needed is not is not just telling people, don't do that. Don't do what you are choosing to do, what you'd like to do. It's important that you restrain yourself. But instead, trying to help people see what they should do and why it would be a good idea, in fact, to, to, to envision themselves uh, as embedded in a series of, of, of commitments to other people and why that's what a flourishing life looks like. That strikes me as easier to do because it feels less judgmental than saying the choices you've made are terrible choices. The reason that people often don't have the, 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 the courage, as Charles Murray says, to, to preach what they practice is that it seems judgmental. It seems like saying, well, I'm making the right choices and you're making the wrong choices, and so you should make my kind of choices. You know, Americans just don't like to do that. Um, and I think that there is a way instead of talking with people, especially with the younger people, about what life could be not by not doing what they're choosing, but by making the sorts of choices that can lead them to a place where they really flourish. You know, flourishing is not just having what you want. Flourishing, I would say, is more like being what other people need. That's what it really is to be a happy person. And that means that a flourishing life is not just, and in this sense, I'm not really altogether persuaded that the language of the success sequence really makes sense. Success is not just making four choices in the right order. You know, success is building a series of relationships, seeing yourself as embedded in commitments to family and friends, to colleagues and coworkers, to uh, a community, uh, to God, to country, 
and understanding that ultimately you're shaped by these things you owe other people um, rather than thinking that what's most significant are the freedom, the freedoms to make choices as you see fit. I think that kind of picture of life can have enormous appeal to the rising generation exactly because you have younger Americans trying to envision a, a happy life and having trouble seeing their way to it. Um, this is a moment of tremendous hunger for, uh, for justice on the one hand, for flourishing and joy on the other. And it seems to me that those of us who think that, there's, that, that there is a way to achieve that kind of life should help younger Americans see what it could look like. To me, that seems like helping them find their way towards the best of our traditions. Um, and I don't think we should, I don't think we should be abashed or ashamed to do that. This is what they deserve. This is what we got and it's what they should get to. Because we could be credibly accused of, uh, being a bit of a downer and talking about the changing face of social breakdown. Let me conclude here by asking you, what makes you hopeful that we are fully capable of addressing this, these new pathologies of passivity that we've seen emerge and really tackling this changing face of social breakdown that's before us. So I am hopeful. And, you know, I think it's important to see hope. Hope is not, hope is not optimism. It's not just the expectation that everything's going to work out. I, I don't have that view, but hope is also a resistance to despair, to a sense that this is just too big a problem. The best is behind us and it's all done. Hope says that we have the capacity to rise to meet this challenge. And I think we do. And I think we do in part because the challenge itself is felt by a lot of younger Americans as a hunger, as a desire for a better way. And it seems to me that, that we should see that as leaving people open to being shown, in fact, a better way. I actually think that a lot of what's happening on, on college campuses now is a result of that kind of hunger. Now, it's being met, it's being fed by some very malnourishing ways of thinking about justice and flourishing. It should instead be fed by much healthier ways of thinking about it. But it shouldn't be seen as a disaster for the country, as a breakdown of the rising generation. What you have is younger Americans who want better than what they have. And that is an opening to precisely improving, overcoming these challenges, strengthening the culture. It's people who are saying the status quo is not great. And pretty much any American today, in one way or another, would tell you the status quo is not great. So if you're looking to change the assumptions at the root of our culture, this is not a bad moment in which to be trying to do that. Yuval Levin is Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. His essay, The Changing Face of Social Breakdown, which we've been discussing today, appeared November 16th in The Dispatch. Yuval, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you very much for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja. <laughs>